law. May the Lord Jesus Christ be our example and the Father present with us and the Spirit of God our teacher that our lives would be transformed. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Prayer has nothing to do with place and nothing to do with posture, but it has everything to do with heart. I'm talking about effective prayer. When we pray with an honest heart for those things that we most desire, burdens to be lifted, requests to be answered, that's when prayer becomes powerful and effective. But place is not important. Think of Jonah praying in the whale or Daniel in the lion's den. David on the battlefield, the disciples on a storm-tossed sea. Jesus prayed in a garden. Paul prayed on a beach and a thief prayed on a cross. The place is not that important. Sometimes we think we have to go into a holy place to reach the holy God But he is not in places. He's in people. He's in his church. And he's on the throne. Posture's not important. It's not wrong to kneel, but that's not the only way to pray. Solomon prayed standing in 1 Kings 8. David was sitting in 1 Chronicles 17. Ezra kneeling. And Jesus on his face. Praying to the Father. Prayer has nothing to do with posture and nothing to do with place, but everything to do with heart. I like this little poem about three theologians who are talking about prayer, and a farmer came up and listened to them. The poem says, The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Harry Keyes, the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. I would say the way to pray, said the famous Dr. Wise, is standing up with arms outstretched and reaching to the skies. Oh, no, 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 said Reverend Snow. That posture is much too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. Last year I fell in Higgins' well, head first, said Farmer Brown. With both my heels a-sticking up and my face a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. The bottom line is, it's not place, it's not posture, it's heart. But there's something else connected with real prayer, and it's the word power. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 3. That Paul says the result of proper prayer should be power. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Just to remind you a little bit of where we've been in this chapter. In verse 2, Paul said that the Lord had given to him, that is by God's grace was given to him, the knowledge of the mystery. The mystery was revealed. It was made known by direct revelation from God. It was a mystery about the Jew and Gentile becoming one. And that's what he was talking about in chapter 2, this union of two people groups that used to be fighting with one another, and now they are family. 
And then the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, God also gave me the gift of his grace to serve, to proclaim this wonderful message, this mystery. And so he said, although I'm less, verse 8, less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. He goes on to say that this mystery, which was kept hidden for the ages, in verse 9, has now been made known, and this was God's plan all along, verse 10. His intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to angels, to people in the heavenly realms, and to people on planet Earth. Verse 11, the eternal purpose of God should be proclaimed, that everything will be accomplished in Christ in that final day. So in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And here is the suggestion that we need to pray with boldness and confidence, with freedom and access. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 18, Paul said that through Christ we have both access to the Father by the one Holy Spirit. So he said, don't be discouraged, verse 13. I ask you, don't be downhearted, even though I'm suffering. And even though the gospel may not appear at this present moment to be making all the headway that we hope it to make, understand that God's eternal purpose is being fulfilled, and now is the day for us to proclaim the mystery that Jesus has died on the cross to wipe away all of your sin, anybody's sin, and whoever puts their faith and trust in him has free access to the Father via the Holy Spirit. Now we're coming to the end of the very first section in the book of Ephesians, the end of chapter 3. We've talked about Ephesians being that sit, stand, and walk, or sit, walk, stand, actually, and we've been sitting all along. Uh, the first three chapters of this wonderful book emphasizes what we have in Christ, and we are to find ourselves seated in the heavenly realms. So don't just do something. Sit there is what Paul is saying. Understand this wonderful position we have in Christ. So he has to end this great section with a doxology, with a prayer, and it begins in verse 14. By the way, I think this is the continuation of verse 1. If you read them together, you'll see that the middle verses were something of a diversion. He says in verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, and verse 14, for this reason I kneel. So he was going to talk about prayer, but he got interrupted talking about the mystery. But now his emphasis on prayer includes something rather interesting. The word power is mentioned three times in this brief prayer. It's seen in verse 16. It's seen in verse 18, and once again in verse 20. And I want you to note how power is mentioned three times, which gives us our major movements of this last section of this wonderful prayer. It gives us some major thoughts to hang all the other thoughts on, and even to examine our own experience in prayer. Do we ever pray with power? Because that's really what the Lord wants us to experience. You'll notice back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul's first prayer.
prayer. I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of your calling, that you might know the riches of his glory, verse 19, and that you might know the incomparable power that comes to us who believe in him. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it's the same power that one day will bring everything under his control. That's the power you and I are plugged into when we pray. And I don't think we understand it. I don't think we tap into it. I don't think we expect it. And Paul says we need to understand it and embrace it. So first of all, the first power refers to the power within us. The power within us. So Paul says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel, acceptable posture, I kneel before the Father. By the way, the Jews don't normally kneel when they pray. They usually stand. That's what they do at the wailing wall. They stand and they rock to show that they're animated and that they're involved. But here Paul is praying on his knees to the Father, the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I really think that that's a reference to the fact that Jew and Gentile are now one big family. I was going to say happy. Not quite happy yet, but they're one big family working to be happy. And that's Paul's desire that we understand we're under one father. We are one family, as he mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 3. And therefore, the whole family of God in heaven and on earth is named after him. By the way, That's a great name to have. I'm God's child. Whenever you get discouraged, remember your name. You are named after your father. And he wants you to experience his power. So Paul says, I pray, verse 16, that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit In your inner man. So the source, then, of this power is the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is drawing on all the glorious riches of God. The storehouse of his wealth. The fact that he is almighty with power unlimited. I pray that out of that glorious, uh, out of those riches, he might strengthen you. With power. Do you realize that you are weak? So weak that you can do nothing without Christ? And that's why you must pray. And our lack of prayer declares the fact that we think we are sufficient, that we have need of nothing, that we're rich and increased with goods, just like the Laodiceans said in the book of the Revelation. But our prayers declare we are paupers. We are poor and needy and need all that God has to offer. So we have to pray that we might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. The location is in the inner man, your true inner self, your heart. And whether man is a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, or whether it's dichotomy, just body and inner man made up of soul and spirit, it's hard to know. But this much I know, the real you is not what we see. 
The real you is inside. It's a soul, a living soul that will live forever. Your body will decay and die, but your spirit won't. And that's where you need to be strengthened. We're always concerned about our physical body, and well, we should be, and we pray to be strengthened and healed, but we ought to be praying that we might be strengthened in our inner being so that we might be able to, and here's the purpose, so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, when the Spirit is in your heart, Christ is in your heart. They are one in the same. By the way, did you notice the Trinity again? Pray to the Father that you'll be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Every believer has Christ in their heart. But the the Bible makes it abundantly clear we need to grow in our experience, in our understanding of Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. Charles Hodge used to say, the indwelling Christ is a thing of degrees. And you can have Christ dwelling in your heart in the realm of elementary school, and you can grow into middle school, and finally into Uh, high school and maybe even get a graduate degree of Christ being in you and that ought to be our goal to make advance by degrees with this sense of Christ being in us by the way the word dwell is really interesting the Greek has a word for inhabit but this particular word means to settle down and make it your residence it's the difference between spending the night in your home or in a hotel We spend the night in the hotel just temporarily. We spend the night in our home because that's where we have settled down. And that's the word here. Christ wants to be at home in our hearts and to settle down. Some of us have moved into new places and we still have boxes that we haven't even opened. And we're talking about settling down Sometimes we have the idea that we're planning to move again. So we never settle down. We need to make sure that Christ is dwelling in our hearts by faith. Settle down and at home. I find it interesting that as we come to the Christmas season in which the wonderful mystery is Christ in a babe, the Messiah born in Bethlehem, the one who dwelt in a manger dwells in our hearts. And that is power. So this is a cry for experience, not mere knowledge. That Christ might dwell in my heart by faith. He's he's there, but may I apprehend it? May I understand it? May I even count on it and reckon it and feel his presence? We need that kind of strength from the Holy Spirit to understand that Christ is in us. Sometimes these doctrines are believed by us, but not embraced by us. You know the difference? I suppose the difference would be uh, like going to a restaurant and taking out a menu. And you read the menu, and you understand the menu, and then you close the menu and leave the restaurant and say, that was a great meal. What do you mean? Well, I, I read the menu. I know what it says. 
I even have picked out some favorites, but you didn't eat. I didn't think I had to. But when you get into the truth of Christ, it's knowing Christ and partaking of Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The difference is that, like that between studying geography and actually visiting places. Some of us know a lot about Christ, but we don't know Christ. We're not experiencing Christ, and that's what Paul is praying for, that it might go deep. Second, the second power is the power around us. When we have Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, middle of verse 17, and I also pray that when you are rooted and established in love, that's what happens when Christ is in you. You're grounded in his love. He actually used, uses two metaphors, one of the garden and one of construction, that we are grounded and established. We have a foundation and we're well-rooted. When we're rooted in this wonderful love of Christ, he prays that you might have power with all the saints to grasp its dimensions. Now the location is around us. It's together with all of the saints. And we've been hitting on this truth as we've been going through Ephesians chapter 2 that you cannot live the Christian life solo. God has intended for you and I to be dependent. He has established man and woman to come together dependently in the marriage union. And both need each other. And children need families. Now, in a sin-cursed world, that's not always the ideal. But that's God's ideal. And that's God's plan. And in a church, we need one another in community because it is together with the saints that we learn to understand how deep the love of Christ is. It's not just on your own. It's together when we weep with those who weep and rejoice, rejoice with those who rejoice. So we are together with all the saints, and I, I'm sure this refers to Jew and Gentile. I'm sure this is a, another statement having to do with the racial divide that they were experiencing and how that needs to be eliminated by the cross. Together with all the saints, here's the purpose. I want you to have the power to understand, to comprehend, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And I want you to know this love that can't be known. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. Boy, Paul is reaching for the sky. He said in verse 8, I want to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's a contradiction. And he says here, I want you to know the unknowable. I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And here's where this whole idea of experience really comes into play. How much do you know of the love of Christ? Have you gone deeper? Have you gone higher and wider and longer? Someone has said these dimensions emphasize the, emphasize the fact that the love of Christ is wide enough 
to include everyone, Jew and Gentile, long enough to last forever, deep enough to reach the lowest sinner, and high enough to take us to glory. The imagery is of the cross, rooted in the earth, reaching to the skies, and stretching out to everyone. The love of Christ knows no bounds. And here is where our experience is so shallow. Paul said that I might know him. I long to know him better. To grasp the elusive. Paul doesn't just use a few adjectives to compare. He uses super superlatives to talk about how great God Almighty is and just builds one on top of the other. And his goal, verse 19, is that we might know the love of Christ so that we might be filled with the full measure of God. That's what he said in Colossians. He said, in Christ is the fullness of Godhead, the Godhead and Christ is in you. And the fullness of God is in you because Christ is in you. And now I want you to experience the fullness of God, which again is impossible, but we can grow in it by degrees. And the deeper you get in God, the higher you go. It's like a mountain climber. The air is hard to breathe. It gets thinner at such an altitude. But the vision, the view is utterly amazing. So if we're not very adventurous, understand that you've got Christians around you to push you, to encourage you. That's why we gather together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but gather together to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the final day approaching. So we gather together to stimulate to encourage, to comfort, so that by the grace of God we can go deeper in the Lord himself. The perfection of man consists in the fullness of God. And the fullness of God is the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's interesting to look at the love of God in the book of Ephesians. You've got the love that predestined us to be made like Jesus Christ in chapter 1. It's the love that rescued us from being dead in sin and made us alive in Christ in chapter 2. It's the love that brings humanity, fractured humanity, back together as one family. And now it's this love with all of these amazing dimensions. One thing scares me, though, about the church at Ephesus. If you were to go to the book of Revelation, and don't do that right now, but in Revelation chapter 2, this church is addressed, the church in Ephesus. And in that address, all of these wonderful things are talked about. By Christ, I know your works. I know that you don't tolerate evil in your midst. I know you stand for truth. Nevertheless, I have something against you. Do you remember that verse? I have something against you, church at Ephesus, because you have left your First, love. The very church he had spent all the time talking to about love is the very church that left him. How sad is that? 
Now you say, well, these are some pretty strong prayer requests. And let our prayers be fashioned by this structure. Now this is on par with the Lord's Prayer. Take this as a structure and pray for inward strength. Pray for this power that comes in the congregation when together we study the deep things of the love of Christ and we're rooted and established in it. And pray that we'll measure up, that we'll grow up into the full measure of the stature of God. But how can this be accomplished? Well, that's the final two verses of this chapter. There is power above us. God Almighty is far above us. The theology of Scripture makes it abundantly clear. He is transcendent, meaning so far above us, He is other than us, totally different, and we cannot comprehend. And yet, as we've read here in Ephesians, He is in us. So God is at one and the same time transcendent, far above us, and imminent within us. He couldn't be closer than He is being in our hearts. And that's the beauty about the Lord. The world cannot contain Him. The universe cannot contain Him, but He dwells within us. But He wants us to know that when we pray, when we kneel to pray according to His intent and eternal purpose, that in Christ the love of God might go deep into human beings, bringing them together and maturing them into the fullness of God. He says, now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power. There's the power that is above us that is also working in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of these last two verses is really a doxology. The Greek word for glory is where we get the English word doxology. And it is simply a, a blessing. It is recognizing and attributing to someone worth and majesty. That's the purpose, to recognize where God is. His location is above us. And his promise in this wonderful verse is that he is able to answer our prayer. Look at verse 20 for a moment. Let's just take verse 20 apart. And here is where Paul goes to great lengths to emphasize how powerful God is. First of all, verse 20 starts with God. Right? That's a good place to start. The transcendent, all-powerful God. And then it goes to the fact that God is able. That's the next step. Could, or, could we get the slides uh, connecting there or do we have a problem thank you God is and then God is able that means he has the ability to do anything he wants to do then the verse tells us God is able to do all God is able to accomplish anything he wants to do and then the scripture goes on to say, God is able to do all we ask. And then he's able to do all we ask or imagine. And then he is able to do all, uh, more than all we ask or imagine. And then he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. 
Wow, that sounds a bit pedantic, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that overkill? If, it were, if this were football, we'd call it piling on. You'd get a flag for this. You know, state at once, that's enough. No, it's not enough for people like us. We need to see how impressive this power of God is. And anytime you pray, take this verse and compare it to your prayer. No matter how great the prayer is, if we don't have faith in God, don't let that man expect, don't let that woman expect that they will receive anything from the Lord because their prayer is offered with a double mind, a divided heart, a half of a heart. We need to pray that God Almighty will so work in us that indeed the church will be the showcase for the glory of God. That's what he says in verse 21. To him be glory in the church. It was back in verse 9 that the wisdom of God was to be displayed. And verse 10, the wisdom of God was to be displayed in the church through this wonderful union. Now the glory of God is to be displayed by the power of his love demonstrated in this amazing union. Paul just layers one thought upon another. And the church should be the showcase for the glory of God. Stuart Briscoe once gave, I'm sure, this apocryphal story about a little boy who was in a candy store years ago and there was this big vat of gumballs. I suppose it was in one of those big barrels, you know, filled with gumballs. And he's looking into this barrel and the boy fell in. And when he fell in, he was heard to pray, Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. Now, we know it's apocryphal because I'm not sure he would use such language as that, but it is a great story and a great prayer for us. Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. Let's pray. Well, sovereign God, you have shed your love in our hearts and we are enlarged. Your love causes us to stretch our intellect and reach out to the lowest. When we are filled with your love, we don't shrivel into selfishness. When we accept your love, our capacity is enlarged and we are ever growing. So Lord, somehow this morning, do what do. Take your word by your spirit home to our hearts and light a fire within us until we are able to comprehend how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please pull out your hymnals in front of you and turn to hymn number 67. We sing in the love of God. Let's stand together as we close. We'll sing the first verse and the refrain. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen. 
Now, Father, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with all of us, both now and forever. Amen and amen.